You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. chapter 12 of Hosea, but we'll read verse 12 of chapter 11, which is also printed in your service sheets there. So hear these words as Hosea continues uh, to speak to the Lord's people, starting in verse 12 of chapter 11. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried on to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel. And there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, But I am rich, I have found wealth for myself, and in all my labors they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God. From the land of Egypt I will make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal they sacrifice bulls. Their altars are also like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds." Well, as we come to chapter 12, uh, this has been one of the most difficult sermons that I've had to prepare. It's not particularly because there's any controversy surrounding what's happening in the text. It's not that it's terribly difficult maybe to understand. It's just it has this feel of being all over the place and trying my best to find some way to outline it. It seems that Tim and I had the same problem this week, so we ask you, please pray for your ministers. But we come to this, and it, it feels somewhat disjointed. It feels almost schizophrenic in the way that it, it moves between various things happening at various times that seem to not be terribly integrated together. And so for me, I've found it to be a difficult passage to understand what it is that it's saying. But I think at the core of this, it's helpful to remember uh, chapter 11, which spoke of this love for Israel and the fact that the Lord said, I will not destroy Ephraim completely. 
and the, the themes that have been interwoven throughout the book of Hosea, it, it seems to have some of the highest highs, that God as the great bridegroom wooing his wayward wife back, God as a loving father lifting this child who has fallen to the ground up so that he may walk while at the same time, judgment that is flowing forth from a holy God against these terrible covenant violators, these ones who have broken every one of the Ten Commandments, who have set up idols to worship false gods that can't save them. So there's been this relationship throughout between mercy and between judgment. And I think Hosea and God speaking through Hosea really just doesn't want us to look away from this. To continue to dwell on what it means when we see mercy, but in the ways in which judgment comes through. I mean, think about the ways in which judgment or punishment can be corrective. And in that case, judgment in that sense becomes a mercy. Which again, throughout Hosea, we've been seeing instances where God seems to put barriers. He seems to do things that look like they harm Israel, but are ultimately for his own good. Such as taking away their economic prosperity so that they may fall on their knees and repent. And I think chapter 12 particularly is reminding us, Hosea is reminding us that there actually are real consequences for sin. That yes, there's mercy to be had in abundance, but sin carries with it consequences. There are, are actually real effects to sin in the here and now. And so as we come to chapters 12 and 13, these themes of judgment come up once more as we wait for the ending in chapter 14 where it gives way to another call to repentance. And I think that the, the change that really occurs in chapter 12, uh, you'll see in, in verse 2, is that chapters 4 through 11, really they began this long indictment, this long lawsuit or controversy against the northern tribe. And then all of a sudden, as we'll see in verse 2, that the Lord now has a controversy, an indictment, a lawsuit against Judah. And so as we, we look at this this evening, a, a loose outline that I found to be helpful is that it does seem to be that verses, uh, uh, verse 12 of chapter 11 and verse 1 of chapter 12 uh, form the summary statement, really showing forth the current state of things for the northern tribe and the southern tribe. But then in verses 2 through 9 of chapter 12, you have a new indictment and you seem to have an expansion of the old one. That though God is, is taking aim, as it were, at the southern tribe of Judah, the northern tribe is not left, uh, is not left from being indicted once more. And then verses 9 through 14, there seems to be these concluding remarks about God's character, about what's going to happen uh, in the end. And so as we look at this, uh, this evening, this summary statement, uh, verse 12 of chapter 11 actually in the Hebrew is found to be verse 1 of chapter 12. It's interesting. I don't know. I didn't look up the reason as to why the numbering is different between the Hebrew and the English translations. But it does seem that verse 12 fits in with chapter 12, verse 1. It begins by declaring the spiritual character, the spiritual state of Israel. And it paints them in the most unflattering of pictures. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies in the house of Israel with deceit. 
Uh, here, Hosea seems to be pulling off of imagery from the Psalms. You'll think of David when he's crying out to the Lord that he looks around and he's surrounded by these enemies that are seeking his life. And here there is a, a, a me, this me in chapter, in verse 12, who is surrounded with, surrounded with lies and deceit. All of these enemies are, are forming around him. And I think the first time I read it, I assumed that who was speaking there was God was saying, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and deceit. But it's also entirely possible that the me in verse 12 is actually Hosea. Hosea is saying, Lord, these people, your people, have surrounded me with lies and with deceit. And that would bring us back to chapter 9, which speaks of the prophet as a madman. It speaks of, of Israel as a nation that has absolutely refused to listen to God's word. And in the end, it actually doesn't really matter whether it's Hosea or whether it's God who is being pictured surrounded by lies and deceit because the way in which the prophet is the mouthpiece of God. Hosea is speaking authoritatively for God. And then to call into question what he is saying is to call into question what God is saying. And so we have this where the uh, nation of Israel is refusing to listen to God, not just not listening to him, but then casting lies upon him. They're really breaking this covenant relationship. The idea of lying and deceit has with it deception, betrayal, attributing malice and evil intentions to God. And that flows out, we'll see later, into evil practices, deceptive practices that they do for others. I mean, think of the, the lie that Satan perpetrated in the garden with Adam and Eve. Ultimately, at its core, he really asked the question, is God really good? Is God really good? And here, God's people, Israel, answers in the negative, no, God is not good. God is not good. They surround him with lies and deceit. But then it switches over to the state of Judah in the second half of verse 12. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Now, I won't go long into this. There's a bit of a translation issue. If you're using the New International Version, uh, this second part of this verse is translated very differently. Uh, the NIV translated, translates it, and Judah is unruly against God, even against the faithful Holy One. When I found that out in the course of my studies, obviously that sent me down a very long rabbit hole trying to figure out how one translation translates it positive and one translation translates it negative. And again, I, I won't bore you with the Hebrew. You can ask me afterwards if you really desperately want to know, but it hinges upon several things in the text the predominant one being the word walks, but Judah still walks with God is a very rare word in Hebrew. And so trying to figure out what it means in context seems to be how this is happening. And I think the NIV just looks two verses down to see Judah being indicted and says, well, this must be referring to Judah acting in an evil capacity. Again, I don't have time to go into it. I think the ESV is probably accurate in its translation because throughout Hosea, Judah has been pictured on both sides. There are instances where Judah is called uh, and shown forth as acting in a holy capacity, acting in a good capacity. But then there are also many instances in the book of Hosea where Judah is equated to being exactly like Israel, 
So to me, I find no problem that they say Judah walks with God on the one hand and God has an indictment with them on the other. Because if you know the history of Judah, you'll know that it has ups and downs and then a great crash. And actually, as we go through Hosea, it is important to remember that Hosea feels like it's, it's just hammering and hammering the northern tribe. But if you remember what happens to the, to the southern tribe, to Judah, they get the longest books of prophetic denunciation. You think of the book of Isaiah, the book of Jeremiah, and the book of Ezekiel. All of these directing God's anger at the sin of the southern tribe. And so to me, I find no problem with the translation of Judah walking with God on the one hand and God having an indictment on them on the other. And so it shouldn't, it shouldn't surprise us because, again, the history bears this out that there are times where Judah is more faithful. And at present, if this is taking place during the, the days of Hezekiah, Judah is generally, on average, walking with the Lord in a much better capacity. But ultimately, the end of Judah is the same as the end of Israel because of the same exact sins. About a hundred years later, Judah just makes the same mistake that Israel does. And so then we continue on with the state of Ephraim. Ephraim is pictured as one who feeds on the wind, who pursues the east wind all the day long. Uh, these, uh, the, the beginning here of chapter 12 is really just highlighting Ephraim of Israel's folly of Ephraim's folly, it's, it's almost considering him to be a, a very stupid animal, that instead of eating the food provided for it, it, it runs after, chasing after the wind, trying to find nourishment on the wind. And it, it really, I, th I think Hosea here speaking is really, it is trying to paint an almost comical picture of Ephraim's stupidity, as we'll see later in the, in the terms of its political associations. And so you can think of a diet of wind is going to end up with starvation. But it's actually even worse than that, the picture that Hosea paints. He speaks of, of them also pursuing the east wind all day long. And this east wind is, is called uh, the scirocco. It's this wind that comes in and it's hot and it's heavy and it's dangerous. And it actually will tear up the land. And if you're caught in it, can actually kill you. And so they're, they're not only chasing after the wind and potentially dying of starvation, but they're actually, in a sense, chasing after hurricane-force winds for sustenance. And so not will they, only will they just find nothing, they'll actually find something that could destroy them. And this bears out. This is exactly what Israel is doing. They're chasing after other political allies for help instead of coming to the Lord. And what's going to happen? They make a covenant with Assyria, and it's Assyria who destroys them in the end. So that's what Hosea is driving at here is Ephraim's poor political choices. Because obviously Israel's not actually chasing after wind, but they're acting just as stupid. Hosea indicts them for the covenant that they make with Assyria, that they are those who multiply falsehoods, lies, and violence. And from that, they make a covenant with Assyria. And when we come across this word covenant, it's often it's used speaking of the relationship between God and his people. God is the great king, Israel as the vassal state. But here, it's not God, it's Assyria that Israel has, has entered into this covenant agreement here. And it's not just a political 
It's not just a political covenant as if Assyria is just the boss and Israel is now the servant, though that is what's happening. But also effectively, Israel is swearing allegiance to everything in Assyria, including their worship. By, by, By making this covenant, they are effectively swapping out Yahweh for Assyria and Assyrians' gods for their proper worship. But also they're sending oil, which is olive oil. They're sending olive oil being carried to Egypt. At this time, Assyria and Egypt represent the two main superpowers. And Israel, you can imagine, is stuck in the middle of them. And the Assyrians will be the ones that destroy them. And they can see the ways in which the Assyrians are, are gaining power. They don't seem to be terribly trustworthy. So the Israelites, instead of turning to the Lord of the universe, start sending olive oil down to uh, proverbial, really grease the palms of the Egyptians in order that at some point maybe the Egyptians will come and save them should Assyria attack. And in the end, it's just, uh, it's just a, a making a situation worse. This is this rabbit hole of sin that they seem to be falling down. You'll remember the beginning of Hosea really speaks about idolatry. It speaks of idolatry, and and now we're in a state where not only are they idolatrous, but they're charging God and his prophet with lies, and they're seeking hope and salvation from their very enemies who will destroy them. I mean, it sounds so stupid. It, It sounds like looking on this, that we would never be in a position to do something this dumb. But in many ways... Hosea is simply highlighting what idolatry just actually is. This is what idolatry actually is in the real world. This is how Satan works. Satan never plays fair with temptation. Satan never gives you all the facts in regards to sin. Sin, uh, Satan constantly baits bad things with good-looking things on the outside. He never plays fair and drags us down with him. But as we move on, there's tremendous hope when Israel recognizes the fact that he is a sinner, that they recognize that they are sinners. Because again, remember the whole purpose of the book of Hosea is actually to get them to repent. And part of that repentance is knowing that they're sinners, but also recognizing that when this immediate punishment comes, that it is from a God who loves them and is correcting them. And you think of really the the prodigal son, the parable that Jesus tells of this, this son who takes everything from the father and then finds himself in squalor. He finds himself in the effects of his own sin. But then Jesus tells this wonderful story of how he comes back to his father with nothing. And what what does his father do? He sees him. He runs to them. He embraces him. And then he gives him a feast. And really, the book of Hosea is just the working out of that parable with real people and real stakes. And so then Hosea continues with a new indictment. And again, we would almost be shocked to read this as we see the way in which uh, Ephraim, Israel, has been constantly indicted and constantly shown to be sinners. Now, all of a sudden, in verse 2 of chapter 12, the Lord, Yahweh, has an indictment against Judah. 
The Lord has a lawsuit, has a controversy. This would bring us all the way back to chapter 4, verse 1, which begins with the Lord having a controversy against Ephraim, against Israel. And then really chapter 4 all the way to chapter 11 is the, the full lawsuit that God is bringing against the northern tribe. And now as we move here into chapter 12, now this lawsuit is being brought against Judah. And the Lord says, I will punish him. I will punish Judah. I will repay him according to his deeds. And Judah now is being punished or in the future will be punished because ultimately what's happening is Judah is actually just being held to the exact same standards. Judah is being held to the very same covenant standards and holy requirements that Israel is being held to. And so Hosea then brings up in his speech, he brings up, and this is the, this is the part where things seem to switch quickly. He speaks about uh, Judah. He speaks about the ways in which Jacob will be punished. And then he, he moves, using that as a segue, into bringing up the life of Judah. Sorry, the, the life of Jacob. And it's not clear whether he's using this as an example of Jacob's life in the sense of a negative example or whether he's using it as a positive example. I think in the end, what he's trying to show is that Jacob is one who struggles and strives. Because you remember the story, he is one who deceives and tricks, but he's also the one who struggles and who wrestles and even wrestles with God. And then he meets God at that point where he is wrestling with an angel at Bethel, and there God discloses to him his name and really commissions him as now uh, Israel instead of as Jacob. And Hosea seems to be pulling from that scene and speaking of Jacob as he wrestles with this angel and prevails. He's weeping and seeking his favor. There seems to be real repentance here for Jacob. And I think what Hosea is trying to do with bringing this history of Jacob back in is really trying to remind them of the way in which Jacob, though he was imperfect, though he was a sinner, though his life is marked by terrible episodes, yet he was somebody who strove after and even had this wrestling match with God in order to gain a blessing. For Jacob, he, he knew in that instant by uh, the power of the Holy Spirit that what he needed was God, his forgiveness and his blessing upon his life. And so he worked at it, he fought at it, right? he, he wrestled. And so Hosea is pulling that example back from Israel's history to get to that culminating point in verse 6. So you, southern tribes, so you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. It was not planned that we would do Psalm 31 in the morning and Hosea 12 in the evening, but they, they do dovetail nicely with this reminder of waiting and holding fast. And again, you can think of what he has just spoken about of this wrestling match that was, that was happening between Jacob and the angel of the Lord. And here he's saying, hold fast to the things that God desires, to love justice, to love mercy, and to wait upon your God. And he's really, he's calling them to repentance. He's offering them repentance. But I love the way he phrases it, not just return to your God, but he says, return by the help of your God. That, that Israel and Judah will both return to God by and through his help in their lives. And so this isn't just a pull yourself up by your socks. 
but rather trust in the Lord, trust in the power of the Holy Spirit. Renounce your sins, fall upon your knees, and he will help you return. Wait upon him. And so this wonderful repentance here offered to the southern tribe, but also note the way in which Hosea designates him as Jacob, and Jacob would be the father of the 12 tribes. So really, Jacob would be one of the times where the whole tribes were united as one. So Ephraim and Judah were sons of Jacob. And so this repentance is also offered to the southern, sorry, to the northern tribe, to Ephraim, Israel. But then Hosea switches again quite quickly in verse 7. We, we, we then move from this indictment against Judah now to this uh, expansion of Ephraim's sins. In verse 7, there's another uh, analogy here of Ephraim. They are a merchant whose hands are false balances and who loves to oppress. And so he's, a, he's, a, he's pictured as a, as a merchant who loves to deceive people and to unjustly gain wealth to himself. And it's interesting that here, I think Hosea is making a play on words because actually the word for merchant is the same word for Canaan. And really, that likely what happened is the Canaanites were merchants. And so the word, I think, moves into the Hebrew language to just de- designate all merchants with the same word as the Canaanites. And so Hosea, I believe, is making this wordplay to say that the Israelites who now dwell in the land of Canaan are acting much more Canaanite than they are Israelite. In verse 8, we see that what the effects of this oppression are. They, they are rich, they say. I've gathered all of this money through unjust means. And through all of this, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I'm doing all these great sins, but no one knows. There's this delight in sin just like the Canaanites before them delighted in sin. Just like many people today and throughout history delighting in sin and and really believing that they'll never be found out. Again, isn't that the way sin works? Sin works in the darkness. You think just because God is not there physically manifesting his presence in front of you, that it's okay. That's Israel's thinking right now. And, and throughout the latter part of their history, before they're destroyed, it's worked for them. They have had economic prosperity. Things have gone well for them, and nothing has happened to the contrary. And so they continue in this sin. They continue in this, this way in which they think about things in terms of we're always going to get away with it. But ultimately, in the end, I don't know if you have the game of chicken over here where two kids race on bicycles and one swerves. We call it chicken. I don't know if it goes by another name here, but ultimately Israel's playing a game of chicken with an express train. Like at some point, the bill is going to become due. They will have to face up to what they've done. And so I think here, as as Hosea is expanding upon Israel's sin once again, I think it's clear that, again, his point is to continually remind these people, not of the fact that they're sinners, but rather here are these specific sins. And he wants them to repent. We'll see that when we get to chapter 14. 
that he wants them to repent of their sins, to find hope, to find comfort, to find peace in Yahweh, your God. To find peace, to find hope. In verse 9, it says, I am the Lord, your God. And the second reason is, is because he's explaining to them or, or will explain to them this principle, really, that sin will be exposed. Right? He's bringing up the fact that Israel thinks he will never have his sins exposed because the opposite is true. His sins will be exposed. The Lord keeps speaking to that. Using the imagery of, of a person who is stripped of their clothing and forced to walk in shame as the exile is pictured, that they will face their sins. And we can think about this too, that in, in this life, there are many instances where, where sins have been exposed. And we see these public scandals, sadly, even plaguing the church. But in some ways, it's good that the sin is outed. But ultimately, as the, the rest of the Bible shows us, is somehow, if you were to escape the exposure of your sins in this life, you cannot escape God. You cannot escape God's reach, and you cannot escape God's knowledge. I mean, he literally created everything, and he knows everything. And so you cannot escape him. And again, from this morning, you cannot run from him, so run to him. All the more reason to repent. And all the more reason to repent and do the works of mercy and righteousness. And so finally, we get these concluding remarks in verses 9 through 14 of, of, the, of the Lord responding to all of this. We move now directly to where the Lord is speaking, and you'll see in verse 9 and 10 the use of, of I throughout these verses. I am, I will, I spoke. That the Lord is speaking to his wayward people. It does form a nice contrast with verse 8, right? Ephraim is, is boasting, I am rich. No one will find me out. And verse 9, I am the Lord your God. From the land of Egypt, I will make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. And I think it's important to see here at the beginning of verse 9 the way God describes himself. I am Yahweh, your God. I am Yahweh, your God. To the, the people who are mired in sin, that they are in covenant relationship with him, God reminds them that he is still their God. And think about the tremendous comfort that is found here. For, for the believer who may find himself in a situation in which he is in the depths of sin and rebellion, much like the prodigal son, that God says you are actually not utterly cast off, that you can return, that you can come home, that I am your God. To me, that offers tremendous comfort for those who may be trapped in sin, who may find themselves at the lowest point in their life, that the scriptures, though they hammer home hard after <laughs> verse after chapter about our sins, yet they never want to end up with you in complete despair. To say, God calls you to come home. Again, look at the way he describes himself. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. 
He brings up this time in which in the life of his people that he was the God who delivers. He is the God who rescues. He is the God who saves. And ultimately, we'll see this in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came from heaven to earth in order to rescue and redeem a people out of a greater sin and slavery. And then there appears to be this moment where through God's judgment, mercy comes. He says, I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feasts. It seems to be insinuating that the Lord will strip them of all their economic prosperity, excuse me, making them dwell in tents again. But you'll note that what he's not alluding to is the wilderness wandering when they dwelled in tents. He's alluding to the days of the appointed feasts. The Feast of Booths when the Israelites would actually reenact the wilderness wandering while living in these tents. But actually, it was a time of celebration, a time of feasting, and of being together and reminding themselves of God's great goodness. And so I think here in verse 9, what we're seeing is, is twofold. is One, that the judgment is coming, but also that that judgment will be a mercy to them. That once they're stripped of all of these things that they call idols, then they will return to the Lord. And then God says, he is the one who spoke to the prophets. It was I who did this. I multiplied visions through prophets, gave parables. I think bringing us back up to uh, verse, uh, verse 12 of chapter 11, the one being surrounded by lies. That is indeed Hosea's claim that they are surrounding your prophet with lies. Here God is reminding his people that that, that prophet is his mouthpiece, that the words he speaks are the words that I speak, that the Lord speaks through his prophets. And then Hosea seems to switch again. <laughs> He seems to switch and move now back to Israel's current state. He speaks in verse 11 about uh, iniquity in Gilgal and sin, or sin in Gilgal and iniquity in Gilead. These are these two towns that have cropped up through Hosea. One of them being a site of sacrifice to idols. And here Hosea again attacks, attacks the idea of idolatry. By just speaking in the first part that all of the, the sin and the sacrifice will actually come to nothing because Baal is nothing. And the second half of this, of verse 11, he speaks about the way in which the altars that Baal, uh, that the people sacrificed to Baal will just be torn asunder. They'll be ripped apart. That in the end, they will be nothing more than rubble strewn across the landscape. that the name of Baal and all traces of him are going to be completely removed. This is something he had said earlier in chapter 2, verse 16. That again, there's this judgment that's coming where the land is going to be laid waste, the, the idols and idolatry and all of that is going to be gone in an instant. But throughout it, it is ultimately a mercy for the people because those idols cannot do anything for them. And so after Hosea does that, again, he seems to switch quite quickly to going back to Jacob. Jacob is one who fled Aram. And then verse 13, speaking of a prophet whom the Lord used to bring out of Egypt. There was comfort I found in a commentary that said, I'm not completely sure what's happening in these verses. And I said, well, 
that makes, that's good. I am um, doing my best to help us through this. But it is interesting to, to switch so drastically of the sin that is found in these cities to then switch to Jacob and his past life. It's possible that what's happening in verse 12, the reason he cites Jacob here, is a reminder that the reason that Jacob fled to Aram is because of the, the sin and treachery that he did upon his brother Esau. And he flees for his life. And so really it's that he, he, he sins and brings these problems on his own head and has to flee to them. And he spends this long life of servitude in this game of one-upsmanship with his father-in-law as they both attempt to really trick each other until he flees and comes back to the land of Canaan. Seems to be that he's painting a negative example, the way in which sin and treachery come back upon one's own head. But then verse 13, he seems to be bringing out a positive example about the way in which the Lord has raised up prophets in the old. And here he's speaking of Moses, but he's not using Moses' name, about the ways in which Moses, this great figure in the Old Testament, led Israel, that God used Moses to lead his people, that Moses was this prophet who protected and guided the people. Ultimately, I think signifying the way in which God's word provided, protected, and guided his people. And so he brings up these two examples, I think, in helping to see for the people of Israel which path they should choose, that one path leads to the sin being brought upon their own head, the other is following the prophet, following the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. And then at the end of verse 14, it ends really on a, a difficult note here. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so the Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will pay him for his disgraceful deeds. And that's it. <laughs> that's the end of chapter 12, an indictment against Judah and a promise that Israel's sin will come back upon him. So what do we make of this passage? What do we make of this passage? I think there are several things that Hosea is bringing out to us. Certainly the themes of judgment and mercy are completely intertwined throughout. Again, it almost seems schizophrenic the way he shifts from one perspective to the other. But I think he's bringing up an important point. Because yes, we, we trust in the mercy of God. Yes, we find our hope in the mercy of God. But I think he wants to, to bring out on the one hand that sin brings punishment. Sin brings punishment and judgment and correction even to the believer. That Hebrews speaks to the way in which God chastises his children. I think Hosea is bringing up that very difficult point that the book of Hebrews brings up, that the New Testament brings up, that constant rebellion against the Lord should cause us to question our faith. That to be constantly rebelling and constantly leaving, living a life in opposition to God should be a warning sign. Right? Paul wants to make sure that no one ever thinks that God's grace justifies sinning. But I think on the other hand, and this is maybe why the, the text shifts so much, is because it's easy to fall off on one side and say, well, if you sin, you should question your salvation. That's not what Hosea is saying. That's not what I'm saying. 
but it's easy to fall off one side. And Hosea then wants to, to make sure that on the other hand, we know that the most sinful Christian can find forgiveness. The most sinful and evil un, non-Christian can find forgiveness. I mean, that is what he's saying in this passage. Repent by the help of your God. Return to him, for he will save you. And if at this point we don't see that the wickedness and the depravity of Israel, and it's at this lowest point that God says, you can still return. You can still return. We can find in Jesus true forgiveness. Think of the thief upon the cross in Luke, who turns and says, would you please remember me? Forgive me. And he finds forgiveness. This man at the end of his life had not done a single thing for the Lord had not done one good thing, but finds forgiveness and is with Jesus in paradise. And so I think Hosea is trying to delicately balance these two things, that sin brings judgment, that rebellion should cause us to question, but also on the other hand, to turn and to find forgiveness. All right, so it's this balance that he's calling for. He's calling us really to do two things, to rest in Christ and to fight tooth and nail against sin. Basically, think about the ways in which the New Testament speaks of our Christian life as striving, as running, as shedding dead weight, as training, as fighting. I mean, these are active activities. But also it seeks to remind us constantly that we are united to Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit that God is working in us. And so we look here tonight and see the ugliness of sin. But then we look to Christ and his crushed body on the cross to see forgiveness. And we look to Christ now who is resurrected, reigning in heaven, and we can see forgiveness. And if we do that, I think that's what Hosea is getting at. And that's what Hosea is asking us and telling us to do this evening, to look to Jesus Christ. For there is payment, there is forgiveness, there is new life forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres.co.uk for more. Thank you.